Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the Deputy City Manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. If you think about utilities, you probably think about water and sewer because you like to turn on the faucet and have water come out and you like to flush the toilet and have the water go away. What you probably don't think about is stormwater. We're going to talk about that today. Joining us again is Gretchen Young, the city's environmental projects manager, and John Storr, who's our director of community services. Welcome, folks. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, good morning, Chris. Thanks for having us. So... I've talked about it before. I, I started with the city in 97, and I started out in community services working with Bill Belanger. And one of the first things that Bill hammered into my head was that when you talk about sewer, you need to separate sanitary sewer from stormwater sewer. And that sanitary sewer is what we think about as sewer, but stormwater management isn't a thing. Bill right? Yes, Bill is right. Yes, Bill is right. Phew, because I didn't want to be wrong for the past 25 and I, years. You know, I'm hard-pressed to say that sometimes, but yep, he's right. So let's talk a little bit about our history of uh, our stormwater management in the city, uh, because I think to have the history helps us lay the, the foundation for where we need to go. But forever, and, and forever I mean maybe 100 years or so, we had what was considered a combined system, correct? That's right. Yep. And uh, you, you're right, forever. I, I When I talk about this, the city's 400 years old, and up until very recently, the storm sewer and the regular sewer were combined and, you know, varying levels of collection and treatment, but always, always combined up until the last 50 years or so. Right. If I recall, it was like the mid-70s. Right. A good time from my birth standpoint, but uh, the mid seventies when we did uh, the sewer separation project, which other communities right now are doing just that now, fifty years later, it's kind of crazy to me. Was that a outgrowth? Either of you know, was that an outgrowth of the Clean Water Act uh, that was established around that time? Yeah, we, we just hit the uh, the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. It was 1972. Senator Ed Muskie from Maine, and um, it, prior to that. As Gretchen alluded to, there was one pipe that would take the storm water and it would take the sewers. So you had raw sewage going right to your fresh water bodies, to the Kachiko River and other places. So we've well, come I a long way. I suppose as a plus, as Gretchen told us last time, we don't use surface water for our drinking water. So that would be a good thing because if you did. Whew. But uh, so we had the separation project. And so now does the uh, the storm water, does that still go to the river or does that go elsewhere? Well, the stormwater is collected, and ultimately it does go to the river, although um, the ideal is to get it back into the groundwater, which is something we were talking about last time, is the city of Dover is entirely uh, groundwater, well-based community. So, you know, making sure that we are recharging those resources for a whole number of reasons, it uh, is important to do that, to slow runoff down. So would that be the idea of infiltration? That's right. That's infiltration. Ooh. Yep. I'm learning something every day. That's right. The idea is that stormwater, whether it's runoff, whether it's rain coming to the ground, we get that back into our groundwater. Is there a cleansing aspect we need to be worried about, or does the soil, the grass naturally clean the water? Both, although stormwater is changing, the treatment for stormwater is changing all of the time as we learn more and more about it. And 
I'm really um, thankful to work for the city of Dover because we've really been at the forefront before my coming on here, learning about the best ways to treat stormwater. But as you say, a, a number of the pollutants that do come from rainwater and come across impervious areas, parking lots, can be managed through infiltration through the soils and through the vegetation uptake. Now, something probably neither of you know is that my master's thesis was on using impervious surface coverage to direct growth and to put urban growth boundaries in certain areas, certain aquifers, because we wanted to limit our impervious surface coverage here in Dover. I did not know that, but I'm not surprised. That's excellent. (laughs) And through that is where I became more aware of stormwater runoff and the need for limiting impervious surface or at least more efficiently using that impervious surface. And I'm curious... One of the things that I think has driven the idea of paying more attention to stormwater is the cost of that based on the growth and development we've had, both in creating roads, but also creating buildings and private driveways, parking lots, et cetera. How much of the that development does impact stormwater? The development is a, has a huge impact because when you put down things that are impermeable, you're concentrating a volume. And I, I try to think an example, like at our Broadway, we did the Broadway Railroad Culvert Project at Red Shoe Bar, and that went on for a year or two. And I'm sure people were used to the traffic disruptions. But we put an 84-inch diameter pipe under the railroad tracks. That can theoretically handle 250 million gallons of flow a day, meaning when you have a high-intensity rainstorm, uh, like an inch of rain in an hour, and it's over a widespread area that it can't infiltrate naturally into the ground. It concentrates huge volumes of flow, which makes it a challenge for us to handle hydraulically and to convey that water, but also to provide some level of treatment as well. You get those high-intensity rainfalls, and it really provides a scouring effect across the surfaces, can pick up pollutants and contaminants. So the impermeable area to us is the bane of clean water. The more impermeable area, the more of a challenge it's going to be for us to properly handle and treat uh, the runoff that comes from that. One thing that I think is important, at least as I understand it, and I'm happy to be corrected, but when you talk about a pervious surface, grass and things of that nature can be considered impervious as well. When you pack the soil down, when you create a barrier, really, right? That the imperviousness is not so much the asphalt. That is a form of impervious nature, but that the harder packed the soil is, the harder, you know, a more natural environment, a more uh, native situation is the more impactful than the development itself. It's, it's the style of development and it's the technology used in the development. Is that fair to say or am I... I'm, I'm getting scowls from Gretchen. No, no, so. no, no, you're spot on. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's interesting because this is relatively new conversation, I'd say, in the last 20 years. Um, so, Chris, you may have been a little bit ahead of your time. But the way that you develop does have a huge impact on how the runoff is handled and how it's able to get back, runoff is able to get in back into the groundwater. There are tricks and there are ways to develop so that you have pocket areas to infiltrate or porous pavement, which allows infiltration. So there are things that development can do, but for so many years, nobody was doing that. And so it sort of was a slow creep of development and impervious area. And then everyone was just discharging directly as quickly as they could to the nearest streams or rivers. And we didn't realize what the impacts are until all of a sudden we were seeing flash flooding issues in our smaller streams and rivers and then also seeing the groundwater drying up. 
Um, and then that's when we really started talking about modifying how we develop and uh, doing things called low-impact development. You know, it, it's been interesting being in the planning side of things over the past 20-some-odd years, and, and exactly what you just said, that we're more aware now of impacts to wetlands and what that means, impacts to stream beds, what that means, and, and impacts of not managing our stormwater. And you see, at one point, the, the, the rage was a, uh, a bathtub type of scenario where you just collected the water and retained it or detained it, and then then you saw uh, some vegetation, and then the gravel wetlands, and all of these sort of iterations. It's been fascinating to watch how people have, engineers primarily have evolved and thought differently about how to manage and address stormwater needs. That's right. Yeah, it has been really interesting. We have a number of developments in the city that really are within 30 years or so that were um, constructed using that bathtub idea, which is detention. It's slowing the water down, but it's not putting it back into the ground where it needs to be. And it and it really wasn't providing any water quality just by holding it. And so we're actually uh, re-envisioning how we can maybe retrofit all of those detention basins to um, use some of this newer technology or treatment practices. And I presume that the stormwater ferry paid for all of our maintenance and that there's some sort of grant or some sort of federal funding that we get every day uh, that goes towards this maintenance, right? I mean, the taxpayer is not paying for this, is it? No, unfortunately, the taxpayers are. It is currently paid entirely out of the general fund. And that's another thing that has kind of creaked up over the years. So there have been some regulatory changes that have been started. Well, we talked about the Clean Water Act in uh, 50 years ago, and then about 20 years ago, there really started to be some what's called an MS4, which is really managing the stormwater. And then that permit has evolved to have more criteria. And now we have something called the Great Bay Total Nitrogen General Permit, which is also looking at non-point sources. So we have had additional regulatory compliance that's been required, but then additionally, just the maintenance and just the running of this uh, stormwater system has also, uh, the cost has gone up with that. And if I could follow up, Chris, I think it's really important to stress the regulatory driver. This isn't electively that city staff are trying to implement more of these, but Gretchen mentioned the Clean Water Act, 50 years old, the focus on stormwater. New stormwater measures are here to stay. It's the current focus. We could choose not to comply. And if we don't, we could get some type of punitive penalty from EPA. They could mandate that we upgrade our wastewater treatment plant to a higher level, you know, a cost of $24, $25 million. So we're trying to take a very holistic approach with every city project that we do. Can we reduce the amount of impermeable area? Can we put some type of treatment in? And whenever any new development comes in, we have very strict regulations to make sure that they are providing positive treatment of some fashion. So I think that there's two things that I want to key on. One that each of you said, the first, John, was um, if the regulations went away, we'd still have to maintain what we have. You know, it might be a lessening of a burden in the future if you view it as a burden to maintain our environment, but you still have to maintain the infrastructure we have, which gets to Gretchen's point that it has to be funded. The second thing I wanted to to touch on is, Gretchen, you mentioned non-point source. Is it simple to say that a point source is a direct pipe draining into, say, the river or wetlands, and the non-point is sort of more of a sheet flow or a, you can't necessarily point (laughs) to a single discharge location? Is that simplifying it? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. So you're, when you say a point source, you're really talking about your wastewater treatment discharge point. That's one pipe or one outlet, and the EPA or whomever can really regulate, test the outfall, test the flow that's going, test the water quality, and, and it's actually pretty easy to regulate that because it's one pipe. Non-point source is all is everything else, everything else. So even the pipes, the stormwater pipes that are discharging to the river, you will see an outfall. That's called an outfall, but that's not actually considered a point source. It's still one of the the many non-point sources. And uh, just a little fun fact, the city of Dover has over 400 outfalls that we are responsible for. That's municipally owned. How do things like rain barrels or French drains or some of these other techniques that people might do with their home, how does that positively or maybe neutrally impact stormwater management? Is there there things like that that people, you and I, three as homeowners, could do to help remove some of the burden from the the larger municipality? Yes. The best thing that we could do is, I, I sort of talked about this earlier, but if the rain that comes down is staying where it falls, that's the natural path for rainwater. So the things that we can do, like a rain barrel, which collects runoff from or what's collected on your roof, you hold it and then you can use it in your gardens when there isn't water. That makes a huge impact keeping the runoff from getting into our stormwater system. So if everyone was taking on on these uh, smaller projects on their property, it would be a huge benefit to our to our stormwater maintenance. What uh, what I would love to do, and I'll talk about me personally as opposed to the world. I would love to figure out a way, and, and you'll probably say, "Oh, there's this technology." I'll send you an email link. I would love to figure out a way to get a, do a rain barrel that then feeds into my toilet, so that. Basically, because you're just flushing good water down the toilet. So why not use rainwater or, you know, the other one I thought of was, um, and, and I'm not saying I'm original on this, but is the idea that when you wash your dishes or you take a shower, that water, it's not dirty per se. You know, it's, it's certainly not potable drinking water, but why can't that water be reused in the toilet bowl as well? The last time you were both here, we talked about drinking water and the need to be mindful of our of our resources there. It seems to me that that has to be the next evolution for some of this is combining the two. I mean, you're spot on. So that is gray water technology is what they kind of call it. So it's not potable water, but you are able to reuse either the the water that you've um, used it like in a shower or you can um, collect water. And you said, I'll send you a link. There are so many great resources with these types of ideas. Uh, We have them on the city website. There's also a program called Soak Up the Rain through the NHDES, which has a whole number of ideas that homeowners um, and private residents can do these types of projects. What I wanted to uh, explain, Gretchen mentioned having a separate piping system for the storm drain, separate from the sanitary sewer. I think the next evolution could be a piping system for reclaim water, Mm. that you do try to capture some of that, try to find a way to treat it and reuse it. Now, West, you're seeing that more like in the Las Vegas area and places that are more strapped, but I think it'll be coming in the future. Looking forward, Gretchen, I know in 2010 and then again last year, the city organized a stormwater utility feasibility committee, probably not the title of the committee, but, and they, the, this last time they recommended that we investigate formalizing a stormwater utility. Is that investigation underway? Where are you with that? 
process. Well, I'll give you a little bit of a correction uh, because it was a stormwater funding ad hoc okay. committee. And that's there's an important distinction because going into that process that was in uh, late 2020 when we started that work, and it really was recognizing that funding for stormwater is essential and it, it needs to be really understood. We did some initial investigation and it, it came up with about three and a half million dollars of our general fund that was going towards stormwater on an annual basis, which was more certainly than I had recognized. Um, and it was because stormwater does cover so many different things. Through that process, there were 14 months, 14 meetings, a variety of different people uh, and stakeholders that were part of that ad hoc committee, including nonprofits, uh, some of our large developers, as well as environmental stewards and other water protection folks. And through that, and again, after 14 long meetings, they were able to put together the recommendation for the city to pursue a stormwater utility. They did see that that was the most equitable and fair way of funding stormwater. And I can get more into that if you'd like. But the process, so that went to city council and city council had directed staff to formalize a plan that they could then review. DES recognized that this was an excellent project. We we um, applied for some funding, for some ARPA funding. We've been awarded that. Um, that'll be a one-year-long development project. And so in, in summary, we're looking at an opportunity to treat stormwater the way we treat water and sewer, which is a rate payer based system as opposed to the general fund paying for it. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, some of the things we talked about earlier about there are ways to manage stormwater. And so through a utility, you would be able to financially incentivize those management strategies, similarly to how you can, if you are using less water and irrigating less, you're just paying um, less of a water fee. So it incentivizes people to buy low flow toilets and to not have 30 minute showers, et cetera. So I think as we continue forward with that process, I definitely want to have you to come back and maybe uh, members of the committee, if that's helpful, uh, or the consultant uh, come on as, uh, as we discuss this further internally. And then ultimately the city council has their review. Is there anything for, as we wrap up that, uh, that the listener should know about stormwater management. I know you mentioned earlier that we have uh, strong regulations uh, on site plan development. Is there anything we should know more about that? Regulations are on site plan development, um, and they, they aren't unique really just to Dover, although I think Dover's taken a lot of the lead in this. But regionally, we have stormwater regulations that really help guide how new development and even redevelopment happens. Um, one thing I would ask folks to look at is even if a project is not, it's not a new project or you're not going under construction, there are some easy ways to mitigate stormwater. The other thing I would recommend is as we develop the stormwater utility, we're going to be working with the ordinance committee and the DUC will have a number of meetings. So if that's something that you're interested in, please come out and participate in these discussions as we as we put together a plan. That's great. We, we definitely want to encourage the public participation. And so I think if anyone has any questions, they can email you or, or call you or, or is there information on the web that they should be following? Absolutely. Feel free to reach out to me and we will be populating the web as we as we bring on a consultant and move this project forward. Well, as you know, uh, one of the ways we like to end the podcast episodes is with a uh, question to the guest. And that question 
is uh, if you could name three people, places, ideas, things that you think make Dover unique, that makes it stand out, that makes it one of the places you want to continue to, to thrive in. All right. So the first one I'll say as a staff member, I think it's really unique how Dover is innovative and, and always looking for creative solutions. And just one acknowledgement to that is we talked about the storm uh, stormwater separation project in the 70s. But thank goodness Dover took advantage of that funding and that opportunity. Other communities in the area didn't do that and are, are really playing catch up. So that's one of my favorite things. And then as a resident uh, with kids as well, I love the uh, concert series in the parks in the, in the summer. And then I also am just really fond of the Jenny Thompson pool. I've got a six-year-old who's going off the dive board now and it's just been a real highlight of the summer well that's great i appreciate you both coming in and, and having this follow-up conversation and as i said I, I can see many more opportunities for us to talk about stormwater and other infrastructure projects that are uh, of interest to the public and so we look forward to having you both in the future great thank you thank you with almost 400 years of history dover's got a lot to tell up next mike gillis is going to walk us through what happened this week on october 12 1933 Hundreds of members of the Knights of Pythias assembled in Dover for a field day, an event that featured a marathon, parade, and banquet. The day-long event happened at a time when the Knights of Pythias were still one of the largest fraternal orders in the country. Shortly after the Knights of Pythias were formed as a secret society in 1864 by Justice Henry Rathbone, it grew fast, becoming the first fraternal organization to receive a charter from Congress. Rathbone's inspiration for the new organization was a play about the legend of Damon and Pythias, which heralded themes of loyalty, honor, and friendship. A lodge opened in Dover in 1870, called the Olive Lodge. It first made its home in the Moral Block, but eventually expanded into what became the Pythian Castle, further up on Central Avenue. There, in the Order's massive lodge on three floors, the group would continue to practice its rites and rituals for many years. The building was also home to public meeting space and the offices of an insurance company managed by the Knights of Pythias. Dover would be recognized for many years as one of the shining examples of what the Knights of Pythias stood for and would remain a prominent fixture for the Pythians. The first New Hampshire Pythian, William Fry, is buried at Pine Hill Cemetery in Dover. During field day in October 1933, a large contingent of Pythians marched to Pine Hill Cemetery to decorate Fry's gravestone. By the 1970s, though, membership in the Knights of Pythias had declined rapidly, and Dover's Lodge moved to a small building on Dover Point, where they met for years. But that lodge would close, too. The former Grand Pythian Castle on Central Avenue still stands and was most recently home to Moe's Subs and Glass Roots. Although the upper levels of the former Pythian Halls have been dark and vacant for a long time, some remnants of the grand rooms remain. The building was recently purchased, but future plans aren't yet known. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Downloads email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week. Have a great week.